All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Philippians. In this session, we are in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And in this section of the letter, Paul issues a warning to watch out for those who promote adding Moses to Jesus, or maybe just are really calling them to, you know, become Jews in some way. So these are these are often called Judaizers. What's not clear in this section of Philippians is, are these the same Judaizers that stirred up trouble in Galatia and in other places that Paul wrote to? Or are these more just Jews who are calling the Christians in Philippi to uh, reject Jesus and say that if you really want to know God, you've got to keep the Mosaic Covenant? Either way, they are promoting Moses in addition to or, or over and above Jesus himself. And so Paul issues a warning to watch out for people who do that. And this specific warning then leads to a more broad warning about putting confidence in the flesh in general. And that is putting confidence in things that uh, the culture around us values, putting th- confidence in the things that culture around us promotes and rewards, putting confidence in our own achievements and our own abilities, in our own common sense. Instead of doing all that, Paul calls us to put our confidence in Jesus himself. And so as one author says, in this section, what Paul is doing is he's working to replace a spirit proud in the flesh with a spirit humble in Christ. And so Paul begins this section by simply saying, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my fellow Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice in the Lord. And he has mentioned this before. He'll mention it again in chapter four with the well-known line, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And the idea of rejoicing in the Lord is not just be happy in Jesus. The idea is celebrate in the Lord. Place your hopes, your dreams, your joys in the Lord. That's the idea. And that's really going to be at the heart of this section here in the letter where he's going to call them to to really find their worth, their value, their identity, their purpose, their direction in life in Jesus. So rejoice in the Lord. Then he writes in verse 1, again, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. And there's some debate of what he means by this. What what same things is he talking about? And scholars have wrestled with, well, is it the paragraph before? Is it what he's about to say? And and what does he mean by same things? Uh, we don't know that he's ever written these things before. Probably the best guess is Paul's about to write some things that he's already told them or taught them when he's been with them. And so the same things is not same things he's written before, but same things he's told them before. So he's writing to them some of the same things he's already taught them. He says it's no trouble for him, and it's a safeguard for you. It's something that they need to be reminded of, something that he knows they're dealing with. And so he wants to provide a little bit of reminder by way of safeguard for them. And here's what he writes. Here's what he says. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself, Paul writes, might have confidence even in the flesh. That's Philippians 3 verses 2 through 4. And the warning here is Paul describes these people as the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision. First off, 
Uh, just a little bit of technical note in order to help us feel the force of this for the original readers, and then we'll think through the meaning of it. Uh, the technical note is this. All three of these beware ofs, um, beware of the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision, all start with the same letter in uh, Greek, and thus there's that alliteration and sort of the, almost that staccato feel to the language. Uh, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision is literally beware of the kunos, beware of the kakus ergatos, beware of the katatome. And so you kind of get that feel of the repetition from the alliteration. Um, and so that's important, and it's really hard to capture that, obviously, in translation, but the original readers would have felt sort of that almost like jackhammer sort of feel as these, these phrases kind of rolled off of Paul's pens, and they heard them read to them out loud in worship. So, beware of the dogs, beware of the kunas, and for us, dogs are pets, we love our puppies, we love our dogs, and all that. But in the ancient world, um, dogs tended to be... Uh, like scavengers, semi-wild scavengers roaming around town. They ate trash and filth, and so they were viewed as dirty and unclean. There's a few ancient cultures where dogs were kept as pets, but in most cultures they were not. And certainly in Greco-Roman culture, dogs tended to be looked on as uh, semi-wild scavengers roaming through town, cleaning up the garbage and eating the trash. In Jewish culture, dogs thus tended to be um, used, when they're used as metaphors like this, for something unclean, particularly for Gentiles who were unclean. They were ritually unclean, they were outside of the covenant, and they were looked down on because of that. And so the irony is these people that Paul is talking about are Jews, Jews who are wanting to add Moses to Jesus, are saying, you need to keep the old covenant. Paul is saying, actually, the tables are turned on them, and they are the dogs. They are the unclean ones. They are the ones who are outside of the covenant. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, these who are uh, saying that they need, you know, they're the ones who do the good works, and they keep the works of God. Well, Paul says, no, actually, they're the evil workers. They're outside of what God is doing. And then the next phrase is really tricky, and it, it pairs with the first phrase of verse 3. So, beware of the false circumcision, as the New American Standard translates it. Uh, and that contrasts with the first phrase of verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. But that only gets at part of the idea. The NIV translates it totally different. They say, beware of the, the mutilators of the flesh. So mutilators of the flesh and false circumcision. Man, those sound very different. And they're both translating the same word, katatome. Here's what's going on. The word for circumcision that's translated true circumcision in verse 3 is peritome. So false circumcision, beware of the false circumcision is katatome. True circumcision is peritome. So you can hear the play on words. Uh, Paul is playing off of the word circumcision for these Jews and saying they are katatome, not peritome. But the problem is, is katatome just means to cut down, right? It means to, and, and often could capture the idea of like pagan flesh-cutting rituals as part of their worship. And so Paul is really using a fairly slanderous phrase in contrast to circumcision to capture um, how insignificant circumcision is and who these people really are. They are like they're like mutilators of the flesh. They are, you know, outside of faith in Jesus, outside of the Spirit of God. 
to require circumcision is just a flesh-cutting ritual like pagan flesh-cutting rituals. It really doesn't have any spiritual significance. And so it's really slanderous and derogatory to the Jews. And so he has said, beware of these people who claim to be the true circumcision, who claim to be the worshipers of God, who claim to be working the works of God, but they're not. They're dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh, false circumcision. So he says in verse 3, we are the true circumcision, meaning we followers of Jesus, we believers in Jesus as Messiah, we are the true circumcision. And this idea of true circumcision really has even an Old Testament heritage. In the book of Deuteronomy, the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, said this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He says, Moreover, the Lord will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And so that context of that Deuteronomy 30 is in the days of fulfillment, post-exile, when God restores the fortunes of his people. And ultimately, in the course of history, it came to be clear that that would happen when Messiah came, that when that happened, God would circumcise your heart. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 4 picks up on that idea and says, Circumcise yourselves in the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. This idea of spiritual circumcision that thus became sort of a prophetic byline, a prophetic tagline that was important in the Old Testament. And Paul believes it's been fulfilled in the New Testament. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that, um, that in him, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so when he says here in Philippians uh, 3, 3, we are the true circumcision, it's with all that background in mind. We are the true circumcision. Those who've experienced that spiritual ultimate circumcision that was promised in Deuteronomy, called for in Jeremiah. Well, now it's come about in Christ. That's us. And then he lists off three qualities of the true circumcision of us who follow Jesus. He says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. So we worship not in the flesh. We worship by the spirit, the spirit of God himself. And glory in Christ Jesus, and the idea of glory is to celebrate in, boast in, proudly revel in. It's what happens when your team wins the Super Bowl or wins the NBA championship or wins the World Cup, right? When your team does that, man, there's high fives, there's cheering, there's shouting. That's the idea of this word glory. We glory in Christ Jesus. That's where we celebrate. And then the third quality is, and who put no confidence in the flesh, um, the idea of the flesh is fallen humanity, human achievement, human wisdom, human ability to do their own thing, and it sort of almost uh, casts a glance at circumcision, this fleshly ritual, who put no confidence in the flesh. And so that's the true circumcision. Verse 4, he says, now, although, if we're going to talk about confidence in the flesh, and if that's so important, although, he says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. What Paul is about to do is essentially say, look, I'm not saying I reject the Old Covenant or move on beyond the Old Covenant because I failed at the Old Covenant. Uh, he wants to know that, look, if they want to compare stat sheets, he can play that game. That's not the issue. The issue is just that Jesus is so far superior to that that he has moved us into a whole new direction and now life and righteousness and everything is found in Jesus. And so he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And so if they want to play that game, 
Fine, let's play that game. And then in the rest of verse 4, down through verse 6, Paul lists off his privileges and achievements as a Jew prior to coming to Christ. You want to compare religious stat sheets, Jewish stat sheets? Paul says, I can play that game, and he lists off his really his resume, so to speak, his Jewish stat sheet. And so this is what he says. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I can play that game and I can probably, I can probably best you at that game. Uh, he says, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those first four things he lists off, these are privileges that just were given to him by virtue of his birth and the home he was brought up in. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the way the law prescribed it, and guess what? That's the way his family did it. Of the nation of Israel, he was born, he didn't like convert to Judaism, he was born as part of the nation of Israel. And not just of the nation of Israel, of a tribe of distinction, of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe from which King Saul had come from in the Old Testament, the very first king. So of the tribe of Benjamin, in fact, his Hebrew name is Saul, named after that first king. And a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that his family was Jew through and through. They spoke the Hebrew language in their home, they in their synagogue, they read the scriptures in Hebrews, they had Jewish Hebrew culture in their home. And so, I mean, he was about as Jewish as it could come, right? Now, the next few phrases then he lists off have to do with his achievements, not just his privileges, but his achievements. As to the law, the Old Testament law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most conservative sect of the Jews of the day. They were the ones that tried to keep the law as completely as they could. They required purity uh, codes for their house to the same extent that the priests were required for the temple. I mean, the Pharisees were the, the ultra-conservative, most law-abiding Jews of the day. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I had that distinction of trying to be holy by the standards of the, the law. As to zeal, I was so zealous for this, I actually tried to persecute the church. I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness, which is found in the law, well, Paul says, I was found blameless. In other words, to all appearances, to all those watching, he was blameless. He kept the Torah. He lived out the Torah the way it was meant to be lived out. Every Jew looking at Paul prior to him coming to Christ would have looked at him and said, now there's a righteous man. Now there's a God-fearing Jewish man. So Paul didn't reject that because he was a failure at that. He rejected that because he found something so much better. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, meaning all those privileges and achievements from his Jewish background, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Notice the contrast between the word gain and the word loss. In business context, these two words were used for assets and liabilities in metaphorical context like this where it's not technically business it may still have some of that force or that sense but more it's just that idea of the way we would say man that's a real liability to me notice what he's saying is all these things that i used to consider assets that i used to consider like achievements and you know badges of honor and i mean these are the things i would have put on my resume and marked me out as like qualified for everything these were gains to me those things I've counted as liabilities for the sake of Christ. 
Notice the contrast. These aren't just like, well, these are some good things that are, ah, yeah, they're kind of whatever. He says, no, 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 they're actually liabilities. They get in the way. They're hindrances. They're barriers because that's not who we are in Christ. And so I count them as liabilities for the sake of Jesus. Verse 8, more than that, uh, beyond that, even to gain things, I count all things, everything to be lost, to be liabilities in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Anything that would get in the way of knowing Jesus, he says, that's a liability. I don't care what it is. I don't care how great it is. I don't care how innocuous or harmless it seems. If it, if it comes between me and knowing Jesus, it's a liability. It's in the way. So I count all things to be lost, he says, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For Paul, this is the key asset. This is the the main thing, the surpassing value. It doesn't matter how valuable other things are, achievements, accomplishments, promotions, successes, scholarships, awards, uh, trophies, doesn't matter what it is, as valuable as those things are, when you stack them up against the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, they're losses, they're liabilities. They, they are, in some sense, useless and worthless compared to knowing Jesus, my Lord. And to know Jesus isn't just to know facts about him. It's to live in an interactive relationship with him. And so that's the heart of it all. And so he says, I count all things to be lost. I reckon them. I, I look Anything that would get in the way, I count it. I consider it, I reckon it into the liability column of my life. And then he says, for whom, for whom Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And for Paul, when he decided to uh, follow Jesus and realize, oh, Jesus indeed is the Messiah, and he decided to put his faith in him and serve him and follow him, Paul suffered a lot of loss. So when he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, this is not mere words for Paul. He probably suffered some rejection from his family. He uh, certainly lost his social standing, his social community. He was an upper up-and-comer in Jewish society, studying under the, the most elite rabbi of the day. He lost all of that. Not only that, he suffered uh, immensely for the sake of his service to Jesus. So he lost comfort. He lost any... Uh, wealth that he might have had. He lost a physical well-being for that. Like, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Well, that's just experiential for Paul. That's not just words. And so he, he's, he lost all things for him. And then he says, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. When he looks at all the other things in life that he could pursue, that used to matter to him, that were important to him, he says, I count them but rubbish. And that word translated rubbish is skubala in great Greek. And uh, rubbish really just isn't strong enough. I mean, it could kind of get the idea of it. But probably the best way for us to understand what he means by rubbish is uh, in American context, right? Like the outhouse, like if you're out camping and you got to go use the outhouse, something like that, right? Uh, and, you, and you make the mistake of looking down in the hole, that's what that word refers to. Um, in the English language, the, 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 probably the best translation of that word literally is, I'm sorry if it's offensive to you, but probably the best translation of the word that Paul has here is crap. 
Like, I count them all but crap that I might gain Christ. Um, the King James actually translated that way. They translated it as dung. It is worthless filth. It is putrid, rotten nastiness. Um, he says everything else compared to knowing Jesus, gaining Jesus is like that. And then verse 9 he says, uh, and that I might be found in him, meaning found at the final day, found in the day of great uh, God's great judgment, right? Like I might be found in Christ, not found anywhere else. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. And so on that final day, Paul says, look, I don't want to be found in the Torah, having my own righteousness from my own efforts to try to keep the Torah. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that, that righteousness, which is through faith in God and Christ. So I want to have that kind of righteousness, a superior righteousness that comes simply through trusting Jesus, through putting my faith in Christ, um, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice the contrast, not uh, a righteousness uh, of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God. Those phrases are uh, almost parallel in Greek. Um, from myself, from God. Um, and which kind do you want? Your own self-generated righteousness or the righteousness which comes from God. And so Paul says, I, I didn't reject the Old Testament law because I failed that. I rejected it because I found something better, a superior kind of righteousness, the righteousness which God gives. And he gives it simply on the basis of faith. Um, and this is central to Paul's theology. It's central to everything he teaches, that um, the way of God's people is the way of faith. The life, Paul says in Galatians 2, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our mode of operating, our the engine that drives our life is now faith, trust in Messiah. And so he says that's what he wants. He wants to be found on that final day having the righteousness that God gives that comes through faith in Jesus. Verse 10 says that I might know him. This is Paul's great ambition, that I might know him. Specifically, know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's just briefly reflect on those two phrases. The power of his resurrection. What does that refer to? Well, in Paul's theology, the power of his resurrection begins when we enter into Christ and we are buried with him, he says in Romans 6, into death that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. We've experienced the power of his resurrection in our conversion, in becoming a Christian. We uh, have died to self, died to the law. Paul uses various phrases for that. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 2, the same sort of thing. that um, We were buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith in the working of God. And so in our conversion, we experience the power of his resurrection already at work in us. We have resurrection life working in us. Phase one of the resurrection is working in us. 
and that'll ultimately lead to the final resurrection someday. So I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, both now and forever, and the fellowship of his sufferings, meaning the partnership with his sufferings, that the Messiah suffered for us. Well, I want to enter into that, and like him, I want to lay down my life for the sake of his cause, his kingdom, his people in this world the fellowship of his sufferings. In fact, if you think back to Philippians chapter 2, where um, the ultimate example of um, self-giving love is the is Jesus becoming flesh and emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant and laying down his life, Paul says, I want my life to follow that same pattern, that partnership in those kinds of suffering, that laying down my life for the sake of others, being conformed to his death. I want to live a cross-shaped life with the ultimate goal of, the ultimate aim of, in verse 11 here, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the ultimate hint where all this is going. Paul's like, as I go through my life, I have that aim in mind, and on that day I want to be found in him, not with my own righteousness, but with the very righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus. And so as we reflect on this section, I mean, this is just a powerful, powerful section for us. Obviously, Paul is speaking very personal, very autobiographical, but he's doing so for our benefit. He wants us to imitate him. In fact, in the next paragraph, he's going to explicitly call us to imitate this mindset that he has here. And so as we reflect on this, I think it's appropriate for us to think about how Paul, persecuting the church had this complete and total reorientation of life. If you're familiar with the story, it's told in Acts chapter 9, where Paul, in the midst of his pursuit to, to persecute Christians, Paul uh, was, in, uh, was basically accosted by Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus um, so captivated him that it precipitated a total reorientation of life. Well, here is Paul, one way Paul describes it. I had all these privileges and all these achievements as a Jew. I had all of that. And then I met Jesus and it just completely uh, rocked my world and reoriented my life to where now my whole life revolves around Jesus. And what I want is to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My friends, if that, if that doesn't move you, then Maybe you need to get on your knees before God and pray through this text and ask God to awaken your heart and open your heart to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul was so captivated by Jesus that it completely changed his life, completely reshaped his life. And now everything that was gained to him, he has thrown, thrown away as trash. Everything that would get in the way of knowing Jesus, he has thrown away as trash. May we see Christ so fully and so clearly that like Paul, we would say, I want nothing more than to know Christ. He is the true asset. He is true treasure. He is worth more than anything else. May we make it our life's ambition like Paul to know Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, derived from our own achievements and our own efforts, but the righteousness which comes simply by living in union with God through Christ by faith.